Hey, this is Pastor Sam. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our sermon series from the book of Ruth called The Broken Road to Glory. I pray that this resource will be helpful for you as you make disciples in community and on mission throughout our city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge said of of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed, her to, passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? 
Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Sanderson. My name is not Pastor Sam. Uh, he's on vacation. I, I hear he's actually watching football, so he's, he's having a good time. But I, I get to give him a break. Um, I'm actually a member at Sacred City. I, I attend over in Davenport, um, and I'm a part of a group that Sam leads called Sermon Lab, where he trains young men in the church um, to, to preach. And so uh, I've been here a couple times. This is actually the fourth time I've preached here. You'll notice something different. I wear glasses now. I'm slowly dying. Um, so I need these to see. Didn't used to need them. Um, but I'm excited to be up here. Glad to be here going, continuing our sermon series in Ruth. Today we're going to look at Ruth chapter 2. Um, if you missed last week, Sam preached through Ruth chapter 1. Uh, and this book being a historical narrative, it's really important that you're able to follow the story. So if you missed the sermon last week, I would say go back and listen to it. It was really good. It's on the podcast. It's on the website. You can find it. I would challenge you to go listen to that. But if you weren't here last week, let me catch you up. In Ruth chapter 1, we meet our two main characters, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, move their family out to the land of Moab because there was a famine in Israel, so they, they seek food somewhere else. And shortly after they get to Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Ruth alone, a single mother in a foreign land, uh, with two sons. Her sons end up taking foreign wives, um, women of Moab, they marry them. And then shortly after that, her sons pass away. And so Naomi is left in a foreign land, not just a single mother, but a, a single widow with her sons dead, left with her stepdaughters. Or step, not stepdaughters, daughters-in-law. But Ruth is industrious. She, she finds a way out. Naomi finds a way out, and she moves back to Jerusalem, to specifically the city of Bethlehem, because she hears the famine is over. So she gets her daughters-in-law and asks them to move with her, and one of them leaves her. So she moves back to Israel with Ruth, and when they get there, they're greeted by the, the city folk. It's a pretty small town. Everyone knows everyone. And Naomi tells them not to call her Naomi anymore, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. Naomi left full and she came back empty. She's got a hardened heart towards God. She's bitter and angry for the calamity that God had brought to her family. She is destroyed. And chapter 1 starts to show us one of the unique aspects of this book, that it deals with the raw emotions and fears of our main characters at the ground level. 
We, we don't see these emotions from God's perspective. We get to see them from kind of the boots on the ground feel. We, we feel what Naomi feels. We see things through her perspective. And so I think it's really important that we go through this book because of that specific trait. This is a real book. We feel these emotions. We can relate to Naomi. We feel often that God is picking on us, that he's out to get us, that he's being unfair to us. Or we can relate to Ruth, that she doesn't belong. She's in a new land. She feels like an outcast, that she's alone or unwanted. Life is happening all around us, and we're, we can relate to Naomi and Ruth in the fact that we feel fearful, we can feel trapped, we feel like life is not going the way that we expect it to. So this book is really important for us because we can relate to those unrestricted emotions. It's not clean, it's not upkept, this isn't what you expect from the Bible. And so this morning, I hope that we not only can relate to them, but that we can learn what they learn here. We can see what God teaches them and we can learn that ourselves. Specifically what Naomi learns, that no matter how dark her life seems, no matter how thick the clouds are, the sun is still there. There's still hope. This morning in chapter 2, we get to see that hope dawn. We get to see God step in and move. We get to see Naomi change. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into this text this morning. Father, I pray that this morning you would open, your, open our eyes uh, to see how you move in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Father, I pray that this morning you soften hearts and you heal wounds. Uh, there are people in this room whose hearts are hardened towards you because of what they've been through. Father, I pray that you would reverse that this morning. I pray that we would feel your goodness in a fresh way, that we would have faith and hope uh, that, that you are working for our good. Father, help me to preach your word faithfully. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to jump right in. We've got a lot of text here. It's a full chapter. Um, but I want to start in at the end of chapter 1. So I'm going to read starting at uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. And uh, we'll, we'll jump right in here. So, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So right off the bat here, the narrator of this story introduces us to a new character, Boaz. And the narrator actually tells us things that we don't need to know about Boaz necessarily at this point in the story. We haven't met him. We haven't, our characters haven't met him. This is just out of the blue. There's a guy named Boaz, and he's a relative of Naomi's, and he's a worthy man. Now, it's really interesting to me that the narrator would include this here. Why would the narrator give us all this inside information about a character that isn't even in the story yet? And I think the reason that's there is it serves as a big, you know, flashing sign that Boaz is important. Watch out for this guy. He's not a normal man. This man is going to be significant in our story this morning. We also learn a little bit about his character, that he is, in fact, a worthy man. He's a, a God-fearing man. So chapter 1 ends with Naomi in this terrible dark place. There's a small glint of hope that she's back in her homeland and that it's harvest season. Things are good. 
And then chapter 2 starts off with another small glimmer of hope that, in fact, Naomi's family isn't all dead. She's not truly alone. She has a relative. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So what's going on here? Our, our two main characters, Ruth and Naomi, they have basic needs, right? They've moved into a new land. This is not a place they're used to. They don't have a family network. They have all the basic needs that they need to find. Uh, they need to find a way to meet them, right? They need food. They need shelter. They need acceptance. They need regular patterns and rhythms of life. They, they need some sort of structure. But Naomi is frozen in place. She's not doing anything. You would expect her to lead Ruth, but she doesn't. And I think this should sound all too familiar to us that she's so caught up in her depression that she can't even provide for her own basic needs. She's frozen in place. Fear has overtaken her. And so Ruth steps in. Ruth initiates. Ruth makes a plan to provide for their needs, which takes advantage of God's law. In Leviticus chapter 19, the Israelites are commanded that when they go to harvest a field, they're, they're told to leave a, a border around the field, a margin of unharvested grain, so that the poor widows, people traveling through Israel, could harvest that grain for themselves, so that they could have a means to eat. God cares for people so much that he didn't leave the people who were vulnerable, people who were marginalized, to the chance generosity of people. He built a system. He established a mechanism by which they could provide for themselves. But it's important for us to see here that God's way of providing for the poor relied, relied upon his people to obey him. The wealthy people that owned the fields, the landowners, they could have ignored this command. They could have harvested all of their grain. But we learn an important lesson here, that God's provision to his people isn't always a miracle. God's provision often looks like God's people obeying God's call and his command, stepping in generously and providing for people in need. Now, the New Testament church isn't commanded to leave a margin around the field. I doubt any of us own a farmer's field. But we are commanded to care for the poor, for the widowed, for the prisoner. Matthew 25 actually says that when we serve those people in need, when we serve the marginalized, it's as if we are serving Christ himself. So how are we doing? God set up a mechanism in this world to care for the people in need, and it isn't the government, it's the church, it's us, it's you and me. It's actually really cool to be a part of Sacred City because I feel like we, we try here more than some churches. If you're a part of missional community, there's a chance that your missional community serves with a ministry in this city that does this, like King's Harvest or 180, Family Resources, Hope at the Brick House. There, there are ways that our church is trying to serve the people in need here in the Quad Cities, and there's a lot of need. So I would challenge you, are you involved in that? Are you participating with your MC? Are you joyfully serving? Do you picture yourself serving Christ when you go to that event? 
This is a call for the church, and I think we need to intentionally step into this. Well, let's keep reading. There's a whole sermon on that in this passage that I had to avoid not getting into. So let's, let's keep reading. Verse 3. So she, look at verse 3 again. We already read it. So Ruth set out. She went and gleaned in a field after the reapers, and she happened to come. She just so happened. What a coincidence. There's a reason in the Bible that you don't often see things chalked up to coincidence. Why is that? Because the Bible consistently teaches that chance doesn't rule this world, but that God does. That God is in charge of reality. So what we have here is a heavily sarcastic comment from our narrator that she just so happened to come to the field of Boaz. Now, the Jewish people either hearing or reading this story would have known immediately that this is a literary trick, that the narrator is hinting this is God. God's doing something here. Keep, keep your eyes on what's going on. And this, again, highlights the fact that this book doesn't give us God's perspective. It gives us, it gives us our character's perspective. Because for Ruth, she really did just stumble into this field. She didn't go there intentionally. She doesn't know who Boaz is. But in reality, there's the hand of God moving in the background. And this style of storytelling is really good for us today because whether we want to admit it or not, the scientific naturalism of our culture has really seeped into the church. Even in the church, we often discount God moving. We might even you know, silently criticize people in our mind who get this right, who see God's hand at work. And we might say they're over-spiritualizing things. When in fact it is the hand of God meant to bring us joy, meant to draw us into worship Him. But in fact, God is working in the background, and we call this God's providence. Providence is God's action to defend or provide or guard his people. And this is a theme that we're going to see throughout this chapter, the providence of God, the provision of God. And this obviously isn't the last example. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So again, it just so happened that Ruth showed up in Boaz's field on the day that he came into the town to visit his reapers to see how the harvest was going. Just another coincidence that our two characters meet here, Boaz and Ruth. Again, the readers of this story, the people listening to the story told orally, would have been on the edge of their seat looking for what God is doing here. This is not just some chance occurrence. This is God at work. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse 5 through 7 here. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the land of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Now, you can almost hear the admiration of this worker for Naomi, or for Ruth. She is a hard-working woman. This is, this is really incredible that she is so hard-working and humble. You know, she didn't have to ask for permission to glean. That wasn't required in the law. But she decided to humble herself and approach them and ask for permission, something that really speaks to Ruth's character. So we see that Ruth is humble, that she's hard-working. 
Now, she doesn't know that Boaz is a relative, but Boaz knows her. This being a small town, Boaz would have known about Naomi's struggles. She would have known that Naomi had come home. He would have known all of the story of what happened to her husband and to her sons. She would have known the the plight that Ruth had walked through. And so Boaz isn't just seeing a hardworking woman. He isn't just seeing someone who has humility, but he's seeing the true character of Ruth that's filled with self-sacrifice, that she would give up her homeland, that she would leave her people and her gods and dedicate her life to serving Naomi. Boaz really sees the true character of Ruth here, and his impression of this woman is radically changed. He responds in the only way that he really knows how, service and gratitude and kindness. We see that in verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz's generosity here is really evident. Boaz is going above the call of the law to allow her to glean in his field. And in fact, he's protecting her and serving her. He's telling her to drink from the water that was meant for his workers. You can really tell that Boaz's impression of Ruth and the service that she has given to his family has affected him in a deep way. And Ruth, not expecting this type of generosity to be shown to her, is literally knocked to her knees. Look at verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? This is not at all what Ruth would have expected. We don't don't know this really, but there was a massive cultural barrier between the Moabites and the Israelites. The Moabites... They have a a long storied history with the people of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, they're cursed by God. God says that the people of Israel should not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as they live. That the Moabites are banned from being in the company of the Lord. So there's a real cultural barrier between these two people. Ruth would not have expected to be greeted with kindness. She probably moved to Israel with Naomi expecting to be shunned, to be on the border of society for the rest of her life. Maybe she would have thought that maybe Naomi's closest friends, people that respect her, might begrudgingly accept her. But she would have never expected to be greeted with this amount of kindness, to be accepted, to be provided for, protected even. This is completely foreign to her. This is not what she expected. And so her shock here in questioning Boaz's goodness to her is entirely expected. This is the reaction that that we would expect here. Why have you decided to bless me? She's, She's probably really confused. Maybe even mistrusting that this protection isn't going to last. So she questions it. Let's see how Boaz answers in verse 11. Boaz says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you've left your father and your mother and your native land and have come to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted and spoken kindly of your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So why has Boaz given her this favor? Boaz wants to repay her for the love and affection and service that she has given to his family. His family. That he has responsibility for. He feels an immense gratitude for her sacrifice that she left her people, her family, her land, came to a new place, but she also left her gods. And you can see that Boaz notices that. Boaz sees the change that we got to see in chapter 1. Boaz recognizes that Ruth has forsaken and repented of her false idols and has turned to the true God. Boaz says that she has sought refuge underneath her wings. And so Boaz doesn't see her as a cursed Moabite woman. Boaz sees her as family, as part of the people of Israel, adopted in, grafted in to the Jewish people. Boaz gets it right. But his kindness isn't done. He, he shows even more. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, this would have been about midday in the workday, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she, and she had some left over. Verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. See, Boaz is really pouring out the gifts now. Boaz is moving from generous to, to lavish. He's going far above and beyond what would be expected of him. He tells his men to set aside some of the grain that they've gathered, which would have been his grain, not required of the law for him to donate. He's giving of what is his now. This is what we call hesed love. Hesed love is a term used in the Bible to mostly talk about God's love for his people. Hesed love is not about the person. It's not about what they've done. It's not about who they are. It's, it's about commitment. It's about sacrifice. It's contractual. It's promised. It's given. It's one directional love that God has for us, that God had for Israel, and that Boaz shows here. Sam talked about uh, this type of love briefly last week. Um, but Boaz is showing it again this week, and he'll continue in Ruth. It's, it's one of the major themes of Ruth, this hesed love. Boaz, again, has gone past his obligation to her as a member of Jewish society, past even his obligation to her as a family member. He's now just showing his character. Ruth is a godly man being presented with someone who has needs, and he's providing this is where we really have to shake off the romantic tendencies when people read this book. There's nothing in, this, in these actions that would say that Boaz is romantically interested in Ruth. This is just a, a godly man ministering to someone in need. And Ruth would have never thought anything romantic about Boaz at this point. She doesn't know that he's a family member, and those cultural barriers between the Moabites and the Israelites would have just been way too much for her to even consider that possibility. A lot of people read into this a little much at this point in the story. 
But what this doesn't tell us about Boaz's romantic interest, it just tells us about who he is as a person, his character. It proves what we read about him in verse 1, that he is a worthy man, which is also reflected in how he greeted his workers when he came to the field. He, he gave them a blessing, and they blessed him back, which means that his workers loved him. We really get a good image of Boaz's character. He's a godly man who looks to honor the Lord in service to someone in need, in the way that he works and operates his business. This is, this is a godly man. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he's a Christian author and theologian, he, he says this, I think I have this on a slide. The real evidence of character and the ultimate test of spiritual maturity is not how someone responds to the great, the famous, the rich, and the noble, but how a person has responded to the marginalized, to the unnoticed, the poor, the struggler, the needy. Last week, Sam used the example of life being this broken road that uh, breaks all of our cars down. I really think that's a good example. Boaz shows us here what it looks like for someone who's just cruising along down the road to pull off to the side, to jumpstart someone's car, to pull them out of the ditch. When life is treating us well, when things are going well for us, godly character invites in people who are broken, steps into the problems of family, of MC, of church, and ministers to people. When, when our finances are good, we're called to help other people. Do we show the hesed love that Boaz does? How do you respond to the marginalized, to the, the unnoticed, the, the people in need? Who do you hold that hesed love back from? It's all too easy to give it to your friends, to your family. Do we have that love for the stranger? Remember, Boaz just met Ruth that day. And he's going above and beyond, blessing her lavishly. What does that look like in your life? This is the maturity that Boaz has shown again and again in his exorbitant graciousness to Ruth and Naomi. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. An ephah is about six gallons. So in, in grain, that would have been like 50 pounds. This giant sack of grain. It's an, it's an amazing amount for one day of gleaning, and it's all because of Boaz's generosity. Let's keep reading. So, an ephah of barley, verse 18. And she took it up and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave to her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name whom, with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, pause again just to remember that all of this happened in one day. Ruth left in the morning hoping to glean in a field, hoping to maybe get enough for a couple days of food. And she ends up in a field of an unknown relative who blesses her lavishly and gives her what amounts to months of food. Her immediate needs have been provided for in a single day. And so obviously, Naomi is shocked. This is way more than she expected. 
She asks, where did you glean? And Ruth takes forever to answer this question. The narrator is building up the suspense here, right? Because we know that Boaz is a relative. Naomi doesn't know who she gleaned with, and Ruth didn't know that Boaz was a relative, so we have all of the insight into what this situation means. And the narrator just builds up this suspense. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Verse 20, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Naomi prays a blessing over Boaz for what he's done, providing for their needs, but she also realizes immediately that this is the hand of God at work. She's thankful to Boaz, but immediately rejoices and prays to God who has not forsaked her or her dead husband. I don't want us to miss this. There's a massive change in Naomi from, verse one, or from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So I want to go back to, verse, or to chapter 1 of verse 20. I want to read to you what Naomi says there and then follow it up with what we just read. So verse 20. She, being Naomi, said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord, for the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And then back to our chapter where she rejoices in the fact that God has not forsaken the living or the dead. Why such a big change? From declaring that God is against her, that he's out to get her, to declaring that God has been for her this whole time. Her situation hasn't changed. Her her husband is still dead. Her children are still dead. Nothing has changed. But why has she shifted so far? Her heart was bitter, and here it softens because Naomi realizes that she missed it. Naomi has misinterpreted the events of her life. She misunderstood what God was doing. Because you see, Naomi has good theology, right? She knows that God's in control. She knows that God's hand is in every aspect of her life. She sees that. But what she gets wrong is the why. Why did God allow these things to happen? Why did God tear my world down? Naomi, when she's brought low, she begins to question the character of God, the motives of God. She doesn't question his action. She doesn't say, where were you, God? Why didn't you stop this? She doesn't question the fact that God was with her family. She questions, is God against me? Is God really who he says he is? But in this moment, Naomi, for her, everything clicks. Because she realizes the implications of what happened on this very long day. She, she knows the implications of meeting Boaz. 
Keep reading in verse 20. She says that that man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Boaz is not just a relative, he's a redeemer. This is something that we'll talk more about in chapter 3 and 4, what a redeemer is. But Naomi knows that because Boaz is is a redeemer, he has the potential to save them from all of their suffering, to meet all of their needs, and to provide a hope for the future. And so why has Naomi shifted so much? It's not because her past has changed. It's because in this moment, with the implications of Ruth meeting Boaz, she feels something that she hasn't felt in a long time. Hope. There's a path forward. God hasn't left her in a dead end. She's not trapped to live in this sorry state for the rest of her life. There's hope. So Naomi begins to think about the ways that this broken situation can be made right. She begins to plot a path forward. She starts thinking about Boaz as a potential husband for Ruth. And we can see at the end of the chapter that she positions Ruth. She says, don't leave his field. Stay with that man. It's a very shrewd mother-in-law play. Stay with him. Be around him. Stay with his young woman. So chapter 2 ends with hope for Naomi. God made, God orchestrated, God delivered hope. The situation doesn't change. It's still pretty dark. But there's a light. The author of this book in chapter 2 doesn't drastically change the story. It moves the story along. But the, the goal of this chapter is not to change the situation. It's to teach us a lesson. I think there's, there's two things here that I want us to get out of chapter 2. One, that we fail to see God work in our lives. We fail to see God's hand. And number two, that even when we do see God's hand, we misinterpret it like Naomi. So number one, we fail to see God's hand at work. This is a problem for us, but it was not a problem for Naomi. Naomi very quickly realizes that God brought this calamity into her life in Moab. And she realizes immediately that God is at work in Ruth meeting Boaz. But we are not that quick. We're we're way worse at this than she is. We don't see the hand of God. We chalk things up to coincidence. Or maybe we even think of it as, you know, this benefit, this good thing is a result of someone else's actions. So if we only think of God working in biblical times, if we don't see it today, we begin to train our mind to, to credit the work of God that's meant to bring us joy, that's meant to stir our affections for Jesus. We credit that work to chance, to other people. And if we do that, we either train our minds to just throw away amazement because everything is just happenstance. Why be amazed? It's, it just happened. Or, We train our minds and our hearts to worship and thank and have joy in another person instead of in God. And we begin to worship the tool that God used to bless us rather than the one who did the blessing. We need to see God's hand at work. We need to give God the glory for his actions. We're robbing him of it when we give it to other things. Now I know that some people in this church are great at seeing God's hand at work. 
Even this morning as we were praying before the service, there was this awful coincidence that the songs lined up with where I was going with the sermon and we hadn't talked about it. And someone said, wow, that's amazing. And I thought, yeah, it is. That's God's hand. Some of us are good at seeing it. Some of us are like Naomi. And the church needs you guys to speak up because there's a lot of us that miss things. The church needs you to share that gift with other people like Naomi does to Ruth. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing ministry to point out God's hand in other people's lives. Naomi recognizes it because she knows who Boaz is. She processes it. She feels the hope that God is giving her. And then she gets to share that with Ruth and see that hope transferred. That's, it's such a blessing. But for the people like me that struggle to see God's hand at work, that, that give credit to coincidence. We need to pray that God would soften our hearts, that he would open our eyes to see his hand at work, that we would be able to experience the joy that God has intended for us in his actions, and that it would draw us into worship him more fully. So number one, we fail to see God at work, and number two, we misinterpret God's providence. We have the same problem that Naomi has. Naomi has that good theology that we don't. She sees God's hand at work, but she gets that why wrong, just like we do. We feel trapped. We feel hopeless. We wonder if God will ever help us. We have those besetting sins. We have financial stress, medical emergencies, long-standing pain, deep emotional trauma. And it's very easy for us when we're in those moments to think that God has given up on us, that he's left us alone, that he's treating us unfairly instead of seeing God moving. We don't identify those times in our lives as places where God is pushing us forward, where God is doing good for us. We think he's picking on us. We get the why wrong. We question God's motives. We forget that we're defended. We forget that God is that good shepherd who's leading us to greener pastures. We forget the character of God. So how do we fight this gut reaction? How do we change that tendency in ourselves to question who God is and whether or not he's good to me here? We do that by studying the providence of God throughout our own lives. We see this pattern in the Old Testament. Every time that Israel betrays God and walks away, he, he comes back at them and tells them to look backwards. I think a really good example of this is in Egypt, when the people of God are in slavery in Egypt and they feel like God is never going to save them. They've been crying out for God to save them for so long and not having any action. And then God sends Moses, and the very first thing he tells him to say is that, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He reminds them of the past. He reminds them of his faithfulness and his goodness to them in the past. They would have thought about how Abraham was too old to have kids and that God had promised him to have a child and then God followed through on that promise. That God grew them in numbers into a great nation, that he gave them great wealth and then when that famine came, he provided them an out in Egypt. God had been good to the people of Israel. And now, in a moment of darkness, when they're enslaved, they forget the character of God, and God says, remember who I am. Look back. 
See what I've already done for you. I am the same. He gives them hope in the moment by remembering what God's character is, his plan for them, his intentions for them, and how he's made that play through history. He does this all over in Scripture. And in fact, when God rescues his people from Egypt and brings them to the promised land, that becomes the staple for the rest of the Bible of God reminding them of his character. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, at various places throughout the law, even in the New Testament, God refers to himself as the God who brought you out of Egypt. It's a statement of his character. It's a statement of who he is. And so as God teaches the people of Israel to trace back his providence through their history, we need to do the same thing in our own lives. Have you ever meditated on the work of the Lord throughout your life? What are the just-so-happens, the coincidences that made you who you are today? C.J. Mahaney says that we need to be a student of the providence of God. And this practice has been really good for me as I've been preparing for this sermon, thinking through how God has moved in my life to bring me where I am today. I'm, I'm an engineer. I work at John Deere. And I've known that I wanted to be an engineer since I was in seventh grade because of a poster that just so happened to be on my teacher's wall. Some stupid thing that I saw and was like, yeah, I want to be an engineer. That just so happened to be there. And then I got into high school and I met a girl and I just so happened to just go to the college that she went to. And we just so happened to break up about a year into that schooling and I started going to a different college ministry. A college ministry where I met some of my best friends, where I grew leaps and bounds in my faith, where I began to feel a call to preach, where I had the joy of leading one of my best friends to Christ. And then while I was at school, I just so happened to meet a local business owner and shot him an email, asked me for a job on a whim, and that job just fell into my lap. And it just so happened to be an amazing experience for a young engineer. I got to wear way more hats than most interns get to. And then I just so happened to go to the John Deere uh, little setup at the career fair, and I got a job there with the experience that I gained at this job that just fell into my lap. And then it turns out that three of my other friends just so happened to get jobs at Deere, and instead of getting placed anywhere else in the United States, they got placed here in the Quad Cities with me. It just fell out of the sky. And then I just so happened to discover Sacred City Church, a church where the gospel is preached, where people are discipled, and I was given the opportunity to learn to preach. And so I'm up here today. A long history of just so happens and coincidences that are orchestrated by God. And I don't know where he's going. I don't know what the next chapter is or where God is leading this or why he's done all these things. But I know by studying the history of my life, I know that God is working. It's plain as day. And so I can have hope through the struggles of this season because I know that God is doing something. I also think about the other people in my life, like my my little sister. When she was 14, we found out that she had cancer because she was at the chiropractor like she had been so many times before and he just so happened to find a lump in her shoulder. And that launched us into two years of insanity. But we had God's faithfulness from the beginning. 
If we had just had the eyes to see that God had been faithful from the start of that time period, how would that have changed our mentality going through such a rough season? To see God's hand at work from the beginning. We don't know where this is going to go. We don't know if she's going to be all right, but God has been good. And we can have faith that he will be good. There's hope to be found in tracing through the providence of God in your life. There's joy here if we just have the eyes to see it, if we just see what God is doing. And in seeing God's goodness throughout our life, we should be prompted to ask the exact same question that Ruth does in verse 10. God, why have you shown this favor to me? Why me? We know we don't deserve it. And in asking that question and in coming to the table this morning, we're reminded that we're reminded of the, the ultimate evidence of the providence of God, the ultimate thing that we can look back to to see that God has been good to us. That Jesus gave himself on the cross for us, that he gave his, his blood and his body for us. And in that, we see the answer to Ruth's question. Why have we found this favor? Because God loves us, because Jesus bought us, because we're adopted sons and daughters of God. And in remembering that, how can we forget his kindness? How can we not have faith that he's going to be good to us even in the dark times in our life? So let me pray, and then we'll take communion. Father, you are, you are good. I pray that you would teach us to be students of your providence, Father, that we could see how good you have been to us. Father, that we could rejoice in that, that we could celebrate the, the providence that, you have, that you've laid out for us, that you've, you've done for other people. Father, I pray that you would use this church as a tool of your providence in other people's lives. Father, that we would minister to the broken, to the, the needy, to the marginalized. Father, that we would use the, the good that you've given us for other people. Father, I, I pray all these things in Jesus' name.